The bright sun woke her up that morning, streaming in through the window, and she rolled over in bed and she saw him lying there and she kind of sighed. You know, he wasn't the, the man that she had dreamt about when she was a little girl. He wasn't even close. None of them actually had been the man of her dreams, but at least she wasn't alone. She got out of bed, she got dressed, and she started doing the household chores. She was cleaning, she was cooking. She thought about going to get water, but it was a little too early for that. And so she just busied herself around the house until, until it was about noon. And then she got her water jar and she put it on her hip and started carrying it. And she made the long kind of lonely trek to the well that was uh, a little ways outside of town. Most of the other women had already gone to the well early in the morning before the sun was up. Uh, the rest would go later that uh, early in the evening when the sun was just about to go down. She chose to go in the middle of the day, even though it was uh, really oppressively hot, but she decided that the heat from the sun was better than the stares from the other women whom she had no desire to see. And I think the feeling was somewhat mutual for, for them as well. She got close to the well and she saw a, a man was sitting there. At least it wasn't one of the women from the town. She didn't recognize him. She knew all the men from the town. So he must've been a traveler, uh, probably going from Judea in the south uh, up through Samaria where she lived to Galilee in the north. Uh, she was at Jacob's well and Jacob's well was a good place for travelers to stop. And so he probably was a traveler. He, from a distance, uh, she couldn't really tell who he was. Um, his head was down, uh, kind of sort of between his knees. He was obviously a little bit tired. And if he were a traveler, that would make perfect sense. She got closer and he looked a little bit grungy, but that, that didn't really bother her. Um, as she got closer and closer, uh, he began to look up at her. And then when she got to the well, he looked at her and he said, will you give me a drink? And she had thought that he might be a Jew. And as soon as he spoke, her suspicions were confirmed. And she kind of sighed to herself and said, oh, well, I guess that's the way it's going to be. And so she said to him, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How in the world can you ask me for a drink? You see, Jews don't associate with Samaritans because Samaritans are half-breeds. They're a mix of Jew and Gentile, both ethnically, but also religiously. And so the Jews would look down on the Samaritans as being inferior. And in fact, the Gentiles would look down on the Samaritans as being inferior. Everybody looked down on the Samaritans. And she's asking him, how can you, as a Jew, ask me for a drink? Because the subtext is my cup that I'm going to hand you with the water in it, from your perspective, Mr. Jew, is going to be ceremonially unclean. Religiously, you can't do that. I have, from your perspective, effectively, religious cooties. How is it? How is it that you're asking me for a drink? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You've, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it as did also his sons 
and his livestock? And see, what's going on here is in John's gospel, whenever Jesus encounters people, he so often uses language that can be understood at a physical level, but he wants to take the person deeper to see some spiritual truth. So he says to her, if you knew who you were talking to and who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's talking on a spiritual level, but she hears it as running water at a physical level. She's at a well. The well water's okay. It's not great. It's not terrible, but it's not quite what it would be if there were a bubbling stream or a spring that she could get it from. And so she thinks that Jesus is offering her running water instead of the semi-stagnant well water. But Jesus is trying to take her deeper. He's trying to move her from the physical level to the spiritual level because she sees at this point, she sees one of her greatest needs is to stop having to get up every day and go to the well, potentially encounter these other women who are gonna look down on her, who don't like her, who she doesn't wanna associate with as well. And she's saying, look, if there were some way you could just give me this running water so that I wouldn't have to come to this well, I'd like that. And Jesus answered her, and says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus, you're offering indoor plumbing? I'll take it. Or at least give me a Roman aqueduct, you know, to kind of bring it from here at the well to my house. Hey, I'm all in if that's what you're offering because man, that would make my life so, so much better. She wants to quench her physical thirst and Jesus is trying to get her to see that more important than her physical thirst is her spiritual thirst. And he's saying, I'm offering you something that's gonna quench that. But she doesn't get it at this point. So Jesus tries a different approach. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. She hangs her head and she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. And at first glance, when you look at this, it looks like Jesus is changing the subject, but he's really not. What he's trying to do is, is, is he's trying to help her see that she has needs that she doesn't even know she has. He's trying to get not just at her physical needs, he's trying to get at her deep in her heart, her spiritual needs. And so what he does is he takes something that would fit perfectly from that society and he's again using it to try to move her from the physical level to the spiritual level. Because you see, in that society, men and women who were not married with each other would not interact very much, if at all, in public. Never mind the Jew-Samaritan thing, the male-female thing in that society, unmarried people, they're not gonna be talking to each other in that kind of a situation. So it's completely appropriate for him to say, go and get your husband and bring him back here so that we can continue this conversation. That's what's going on in the surface. But he knows that at a deeper level, she's had a string of failed relationships because in each one, she has been looking for something that that man could never meet. 
She was demanding of these men something that they were incapable of giving. And they were probably demanding the same thing of her. They're looking for a fulfillment that can only come from a relationship with the living God. And Jesus is trying to help her to see that. And by the way, if Jesus were just about any other Jew of his day, he would have given her an incredibly hard time for these five failed marriages. I mean, there could have been, you know, death, murder potentially involved. That would have been even worse. But let's just assume that she had been married five times and each of those five marriages had failed. Because you see, in those days, the Jewish rabbis said, three is the max. Anything beyond that, you're in really, really bad shape. And she's had five failed marriages and she's with another guy and things probably aren't working out too well there. But Jesus doesn't condemn her for that because Jesus didn't come to condemn her. He came to rescue her. And if you read through the gospels, you'll see that over and over and over again, every time, every time that Jesus encounters somebody who's down, somebody who's in a difficult situation, someone who's sinful, someone who's broken, someone who's hurting and recognizes that they're not who they ought to be. Every single time, Jesus treats them with kindness and with love and with grace and with compassion and with forgiveness. So he's not trying to give her a hard time. He's just poking her just enough so that she'll realize that she's looking for something that she has not yet found. And he's trying to awaken that in her, help her to see that need so that he can meet that for her. But in spite of, of his gentleness and in spite of his kindness, she's obviously a little bit uncomfortable with the situation. So she tries to change the subject. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Well, yeah, if you knew that, I, you know, as five husbands before and the guy I'm living with now isn't my husband, you're a prophet. Something's going on there. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, sir, as long as we're talking about my failed relationships, where should I go to church? Could we talk about that, please? Like, what's the connection going on there? In her mind, she's changing the subject. But again, Jesus is going to use this and he's going to try to turn it from the physical level to the spiritual to help her to see that he's there to meet her deepest needs. In that day, one of the debates between the Jews and the Samaritans is where the locus of worship should be. Should it be on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, north of Judea and Jerusalem, or should it be in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel? And so she's bringing up this essentially religious debate between the Jews and the Samaritans to try to change the subject. It's kind of like debating whether we should go to church in an opera house where we've got, you know, drums and electric guitars and that sort of thing? Or should we go to a more traditional church that's got a steeple and it's got pews and it's got a choir with robes and the pastor, you know, is, is, uh, has a collar and, is, and is, is preaching with robes on? And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. Watch what he says. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit 
and in truth. He's effectively saying the Jews have the right physical location. All throughout the Old Testament, if Jesus had gone into more detail, all throughout the Old Testament, the focus, the locus, physical location for worship is focused on Jerusalem and not on Mount Gerizim. But Jesus says, you're missing the point because worship is not primarily a physical act. It's primarily a, a, a spiritual act. It doesn't matter so much whether you worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You gotta be ultimately worshiping in your heart. It's not about locations. It's not about buildings. It's not about bands. It's not about choirs. It's not about reciting the right creeds or saying the right prayers or singing the right songs or, or any of those things because Jesus is saying worship is not primarily a physical activity. It's a spiritual activity that involves seeking God and saying to him, there are 10,000 reasons why I should be worshiping you because you are the one who provides for my deepest needs, who fulfills the longings that I ultimately have that no one and nothing else can meet for me. That's the heart of worship, not whether we stand up and sit down at the right time and sing the right words to the right songs and dress up in a suit and tie or whether we're wearing jeans or a t-shirt. None of that is important when compared what's going on in my heart as I'm looking to God as the one who's gonna meet my deepest needs. The woman said, I know that Messiah, who's called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. She's doing it again. She's trying to change the subject. She's trying to avoid, she's saying, yeah, this debate, this whole thing that I brought up, I wish I hadn't brought it up. It's getting a little bit, you know, it's getting a little bit tight here. And uh, I know that when Messiah comes, he'll answer the question, could we just please move on to something else? And Jesus looks at her and I, I can almost imagine him just sort of chuckling just a little bit and saying, he's already here and you're talking with him. You know, at, at the way that Jesus says, I am he. The word he is not actually in the original. It's an, it was added by our translators to make it sound a little bit smoother. Jesus says, I am. And a Jew of that day and a Samaritan of that day, if they were familiar with their, with their Bible, with the Hebrew scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament, they would be familiar with Exodus chapter three, which is the story of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. God appears to Moses, he's wandering throughout the desert and he sees this bush and it's burning and he stops and he looks and he's like, what's the bush burning? And it's not burning up, it's not being consumed. It's continuing to burn and burn and burn. And he walks over and this voice comes and says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. And they begin to have this conversation between Moses and God. And God says to Moses, I'm gonna use you to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, sort of in, in a polite way, well, excuse me, when I go to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt, they've been there for like 400 years and Egypt is full of all of these different gods. Which God should I say sent me? Who should I say sent me to take your people out of Israel? And God answers and he says, tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am and I'm the one 
who's sending you. So when Jesus says, I am, he's making that claim that he is the Messiah, that he is actually the God who led the people out of Egypt. And if you remember earlier, she says to him, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well 2,000 years ago? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And he doesn't answer it then, but he does here. By saying this, he's saying, not only am I greater than your father Jacob, I'm greater than Abraham. I'm greater than Isaac. I'm certainly greater than Jacob. I'm greater than Moses. Why? Because I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and Jacob and of Moses. And that's why I'm the one who can meet the needs that you're just beginning to awaken to the fact that you have. He is the one whom they've been waiting for. He's the one who can provide living water to, to, to satisfy her deepest thirst. He's the one with whom she ought to want to have a relationship because a relationship with the God of the universe is infinitely better than the relationship with the most perfect man that she could ever imagine because they're only human, but he's also divine. And all of the relationships that she's had have been so far from perfect. And he's saying, you want to have a relationship with me, not just with those guys. And in terms of worship, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, no, it's what's going on in your heart. And that's what you need to do. And throughout this whole interchange with her, he's been trying to move her from the physical level to the spiritual level, helping her to see that her physical needs are just pointers. They're just road signs that are saying, yes, you have a physical thirst, but ultimately you've got a spiritual thirst. Yes, you have a desire for human relationships, but your ultimate relationship ought to be one with the one who is divine, with God himself. And you're worried about where you should worship physically. You ought to be thinking about what's going going on in terms of the worship in your heart. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to meet those deepest needs. And it looks like he finally got through to her. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, she had carried this thing all the way out. She leaves her water jar. The woman went back to the town, said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this, could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. She's so excited. She runs off without her water jar. She goes, she starts talking to the people. Actually, the word behind that, the Greek word behind it says, she went and talked to the men. And our translators said people because they wanted to make it more inclusive. And I understand why they did that, but something's missing if you say people. Because you see, he, she's saying to the men, Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And the subtext is, and some of that doing of things was also done with you guys, so you ought to hear what's going on here. And so, so she's saying to them, he knows what's going on in my life, and he probably knows what's going on in your life. You ought to come and check him out. And so they do. And John continues, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. 
When they first heard about Jesus and that he had told the woman everything that she had ever done, they began to believe in him, but their faith wasn't really fully their own. Their faith was based on her testimony. And, and, and that's not bad, it's good. We want people to grow in their faith. And, and often that begins with maybe hearing a message at church or, or songs that are sung, or maybe it's a family member or a friend who tells us about Jesus and what a difference he's made in their life. But it doesn't really culminate until we encounter him for ourselves. And so they were curious enough that they went out and they began to believe in him. And they said, hey, would you stay with us? for a while. And he says, of course I will. So he stays for a couple of days. They spend time with him. And as they got to know him better, they realized that he came to meet their deepest needs. And then they came to the point where they said, you know what? He really is the savior of the world. The well, Jacob's well was 2000 years old when the woman and Jesus we're drinking from it. It's pretty amazing to think that that well had lasted for 2,000 years. It's actually lasted for another 2,000 years. If you go to Israel today, you can still see Jacob's well. I don't know if you want to drink necessarily from it, but it's still there. And I wonder if God preserved it in part uh, to help us to remember and, and to make sort of a, a visual illustration of what he's talking about here in, in John chapter 4. But you think, okay, you know, 2,000 years, several thousand miles, completely different societies, completely different situation. How does this relate to me in my life today? And as I was thinking about this, our lives are not all that different from hers. She got up every day and she had to make the trek to, to get her water and she wanted her life to be easier. She wanted indoor plumbing, you know? Okay, we've all got indoor plumbing and we're grateful for that. But a lot of us, you know, people get on the train at five, you know, oh, dark 30, 530, whatever it is in the morning. And if somebody offered you, you know, a free car service so that you wouldn't have to take the train every morning, you'd take it, offer you a helicopter, you'd rise up and call them blessed because you want to make your life easier. You want to get rid of that commute. Or, you know, somebody says, hey, I will, for the rest of the time that your kids are young, I will drive them to school. I will drive them to soccer practice. I will take them to their music lessons every day. You don't have to deal with any of that. You would say, my next child is being named after you, you know? <laughs> and again, we want our lives to be easier. So yeah, hers was well water. Ours could be the commute. It could be driving our kids. Uh, why does Fresh Direct and Blue Apron exist? Because we want the groceries delivered and we'd like the, you know, the ingredients in a box to make our lives easier. Takeout, whatever it is, anything we can do to make our lives easier because we feel that particular need. She's looking for fulfillment in her relationships. That's why she had the five marriages and she's with another guy now. We look for fulfillment in our relationships as well. And sometimes they work out well, sometimes they don't. But even though the ones, even though many of them do work out extremely well, honestly, no relationship that we have, no family that we have, no marriage that we have is perfect. They don't ultimately meet our deepest needs. She wanted to find the best place 
to worship, and so do we. We want the best church, great music, inspiring messages, a children's program where our kids get up in the morning and wake us up and say, I want to go to that church. Did they put the, yeah, they did. There you go. There you go, right? And as much as I love Renaissance, I'm here. It's not a perfect place because I'm here. You all, you know, we'll talk about that later. But nothing, nothing in this world is perfect. And no matter how much we improve it, there is still going to be that nagging sense that something is missing. All these things are good. Everything we mentioned is good, but none of them can meet our, need, our deepest needs. Jesus says to the woman, I want you to go and I want you to get your husband and I want you to bring him here and then let's compare him or me. Is he really meeting your deepest needs? No, of course not. He can't. He wasn't designed to be able to do that. Jesus is saying, but I can and I think he says a similar thing to us. He says, go and get all these good things. Go get your marriage and your family. They're good. Go get your career. Go get your investments. Go get your country club and your volunteer work. Go get your favorite sports team, the Dallas Cowboys. You know, go get your music, whatever it is. Go and even get your church and bring it here. Put it alongside me, Jesus is saying. And let's compare. Can even the best relationship, can the most beautiful piece of art, the most inspiring music, the relationship that is as perfect as any human relationship can be, can any of those things meet your deepest longings? They're all gifts from God. We should enjoy them, but if we ask them to replace God, we're going to be disappointed and they're going to be crushed because they were never created to replace God. They were never created to be God. And if you've ever been in a relationship where the other person is expecting and demanding of you more and more and more that you are unable to give, you know that they're disappointed and you know that you're crushed and it's because you're not created to be God for that person. And the same thing can be true with the things that we own and the activities in which we're involved in any relationship that we're in. If we look to them to be God, we're gonna be disappointed and they're gonna be crushed because they were never designed to meet our deepest longings. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The frustration, the dissatisfaction, the angst that I feel in my life, that we feel in our lives is an indication that we were made for something more. And no matter how good the things are in this world, they'll never fully satisfy us. Because the more that we drink from the wells of this world, the thirstier we're going to get because the wells of this world can never satisfy people who were made for another world. 
Jesus is not offering running water. As desirable as that is for a person who has only well water, Jesus is not offering running water. He's offering living water. He's not offering a better physical life, as desirable and as good as that is. He's offering spiritual life. He's offering eternal life. He's offering a relationship with the God of the universe. And that is the only water that's ever going to quench our deepest thirst. Well water, well water is good. Running water is even better. And Jesus is saying that living water is so much better than either of those because neither well water nor running water were designed to meet our deepest spiritual needs, our most heartfelt needs. Only living water is designed to do that. No relationship can provide us with the peace that we need, with the compassion that we need, with the grace that we need, with the mercy that we need, with the forgiveness that we need, with the hope that we need, with the comfort that we need. No human relationship can provide that for us the same way that a relationship with the creator of the universe, the one who loved us enough, who, knew, who knows everything about us, all of our deepest and darkest secrets. But instead of condemning us, he says, I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to provide for those longings that you've been looking everywhere else to get met. I'm here to provide you with that living water. Why, why would we ever want to settle for anything less than that? Let's pray together. Father, it's an amazing thought to, to, to realize that you, the God who created us, want to have a, a relationship with us. You want to know us. And even though you do know us, even though you know our deepest, darkest secrets, you know our sins, you know our flaws, you know our faults, you know our failings, you know our shortcomings, you know our brokenness. You know that we constantly look elsewhere to have our needs met, yet you still pursue us and you want us to turn our hearts towards you. And so I pray, Father, that this morning we would do just that, whether for the first time or for the 10,000th time, I pray that we would turn our hearts to you and that we would drink deeply from that spring of living water uh, that you provide us. And I pray that as we do, I pray that we'd find forgiveness and I pray that we'd find mercy and I pray that we'd find compassion and I pray that we'd find peace and I pray that we would find hope. I pray that we would find you and I thank you in Jesus' name, amen.